Welcome back, you're listening to In Situ Science, where each episode we meet a scientist and find out what a life and career in science is like behind the scenes. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and this episode I'm joined by champion of invertebrates, ecologist of behaviorness, and superstar of STEM, Dr. Kate Umbers. Kate, may I call you superstar? Absolutely. <laughs> Has <laughs> is, is this replaced your title? Are you not Dr. Kate Umbers? You're Superstar Kate Umbers? Yeah, everybody calls me Superstar and I think they mean it genuinely now. Yeah. Well, Good. I'll it's not tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> so, but this is, this is official. You're a, a superstar of STEM. At least according to Science and Technology Australia. Yes. What, what is this? Tell us about this scheme. Well, it's um, an effort... Of, concerted effort to make women in STEM more visible mm-hmm. uh, in the public eye. And so they uh, chose 30 women across all of STEM to train up in various um, storytelling, media skills, social media skills, sending yourself to meet business and meet parliament and meet policymakers yeah. to, um, yeah, to, to, broaden and train and become more confident, I suppose, in putting ourselves out there and talking about what we do and why it's important. Cause it, so it's not about uh, fostering more women into STEM, it's about what, making the women there more visible. Because, I mean, when people think about scientists, they automatically go to celebrity scientists, like your Neil deGrasse's and your Brian Cox's and, mm-hmm. I don't know, Dr. Carl's, whatever. Mm-hmm. So is that kind of what this is about is this like just the Australian idol of, of women in STEM what are... sometimes I think it is you know being groomed when up to be a, a face the town. <laughs> um, I think it's more along the lines of you can't be what you can't see yeah so trying to I get I think the philosophy is that by trying to make women more visible it's going to <clears throat> kind of naturally invite young girls and women into mm. STEM disciplines. I mean, I feel like we both come from a field where women are pretty prominent. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not maths and engineering and that sort of stuff. What's it been like meeting the other superstars in STEM and hearing their perspective on life as a woman in STEM? So without misrepresenting them, I think they're angry. Wow. Yeah. yeah Elaborate. They are. <laughs> so it's true that in evolution and ecology... Um, we are in a much better, although not still equitable position for women um, than other STEM disciplines. And <clears throat> I wasn't aware of just how bad it was outside of, of our sort of hmm. um, evolutionary biology, ecology kind of bubble. Um, yeah, some people are the only women in their engineering firms and things like that. Hmm. They've fight, had to fight damn hard to get to where they are. Hmm. So I think we often think about like the trailblazers of women in STEM being in the past, mm. but I think there's kind of a, a field, a field. Um, what's that thing in a graph that goes from one end to the other? Uh, a curve? No. Uh, spectrum? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> there's a, a spectrum of, you know, <clears throat> how easy it is for women in STEM across the STEM disciplines as mm. well as back in time in each of those disciplines. So, yeah, it's been an eye-opener for me mm. from that point of view. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm quite thankful that it's, you know, in, in, like it's not perfect in, in our field in, in evolution and ecology, but it, it's, it's easier than in mm. others, that is for sure. I mean, 
I mean, me personally, almost all of my direct bosses and supervisors have been women. Mm-hmm. So it's very easy for me to forget what it's like in other mm-hmm. fields. And have the other superstars been surprised by your experience? Mm-hmm. Does that come up? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, when I say, yeah, I've got these great women mentors and... There's a lot of visible women professors and there definitely not, is not as many women professors as there are men professors. The, the stats, are, the trends are all exactly the same. Mm. But yeah, they're more visible and they're sort of like, oh, well, oh. But, but no, there's, <laughs> there's a huge problem. And I know that you're absolutely right. There is a huge problem. It's just not as obvious mm. for some of us than for others. Yeah. Mm. Do you think that's because in our field we have taken steps that these other fields can take? Or? I, don't, I don't think so. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that we get to say that we're amazing at doing this. I think it's... Um, I, don't, I, I would love to know, understand why it's possible that there's just a huge, you know, a much greater recruitment to begin with and mm. so that it just doesn't look as, equitable, as inequitable um, down the line. Um, I mean animal behavior meeting that I hosted last year had two thirds women students. And although we still don't have, you know, we still have more men and women in the sort of upper mm. um, fields, it could, that, that sort of massive skew in the student population maybe gives rise to like, you know, a better, mm. maybe. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what it is. Mm. Um, maybe Jane, maybe Jane Goodall did a lot of, did a lot for, uh. for women in behavioral ecology and, Hmm. Maybe. But it could change so quickly. Something I've been realizing a lot is computer programming and how that has changed culturally. That was, you know, in the beginning, that was a woman's job. Mm-hmm. The programmers Women there were the called computers, crunchers. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a movie made about it. <laughs> Hidden figures. And I haven't now, seen it, but I'm keen to. Now we have a culture where we have to encourage more women to get into programming because it's a totally male-dominated field. and Yeah, like maybe it was then too. You know, it was male-dominated. It wasn't the men well, were male, in male dominant positions. I guess, but yeah. they weren't doing the programming. Mm-hmm. And I think um, it sort of goes to, to the idea of, of hidden, the hidden work that goes on in these kinds of fields. Mm. And you can talk about it gender, you can talk about race, you can talk about religion, you can talk about all kinds of, you know, divisions in society about how some groups are less visible even though they're doing the work than mm. other groups just because you know they're, they're the field assistant rather than the mm. than the prof or whatever but perhaps their intellectual combi- you know um, thingy where you say things and other people listen yeah contribution <laughs> um, <laughs> intellectual contribution is equal or more or anything or we don't know because it's not recorded and it's not it's not clear mm. Mm. And so other than this sort of insight and being able to work with uh, these other superstars, what have, what have you gotten from this program? Um, I've learned that I should schedule tweets, <laughs> <laughs> which I've never done yet. Use um, TweetDeck? <laughs> no. Oh. I haven't used TweetDeck. It's a good one. I once downloaded Hootsuite, <laughs> and I never used it. <laughs> good. <laughs> um, um, I've learned how to pitch. To a mm. business person. Oh. Yeah. How did business people uh, respond to grasshoppers? Uh, I didn't try to. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was using the principle of knowing my audience. All right. Well, good. trying to. <laughs> as much as you can ever know your audience. <laughs> that was at Science Meets Business. That was good. 
I don't know, I, I think the biggest thing I've learned is that it's really, really awesome to hang out with 29 other women in STEM. Mm. <laughs> um, I think it's just been such a privilege to get to know these people and to learn about their careers, learn about their lives and get to know them personally and make really awesome friends with some people that are out so far outside my field that I would have never encountered them, mm. um, you know. Um, and we've, we've started writing grants and things together, you know, right. we're coming up with ideas and things and um, it sort of seems like it's one of those potential opportunities for amazing cross-fertilization. Mm. So, yeah, I'm excited about, about what might still might be still to come from these relationships. That we're Do you forming. know if it's going to continue next year? I don't know. I was under the impression that there was a little bit of like several years funding, but I'm not sure if that's true. Mm -hmm. um, but I would encourage, definitely encourage people into it. Um, the other amazing thing that's come out of this for me is that I have a wonderful mentor, mm -hmm. Dr. Professor Emma Johnson, mm -hmm. um, who's, everybody's totally jealous that I got Emma, no, <laughs> <laughs> um, but she's wonderful and I'm really, really excited to have her um, mentor me to tell me how, how to do things and <laughs> what the strategies are and... Well, you've been using this platform to get out a message that invertebrates matter mm -hmm. so it's it's summertime now things are warming up things are crawling about and flying about here's your chance <laughs> what what one thing do you want people to know just stop murdering them <laughs> <laughs> just stop actively trying to kill them you don't have to love them yeah you don't have to want them near you you don't have to i mean great if you do but just mm. let's just not kill them let's just not directly outright kill them so we're talking fly sprays and rolled up <sighs> newspapers and thongs and you know the rolled up newspapers and thongs and stuff is not that i mean it's it's it, it would be a great behavioral shift and mental shift if people could like get over it and not have to do that but the broad scale insecticides you know mm. those really environmentally harsh potentially health damaging things i don't need to do it we don't need to do it most of the insects are our allies and actually by keeping around um by keeping around most insects, we, we tend to control the ones that drive us crazy, like cockroaches and mosquitoes and stuff like mm -hmm. that. Yeah. How's this being received? Are people generally... Are, are you preaching to the choir, essentially? Uh, I mean, here, here in the echo chamber, everyone, <laughs> everybody agrees. It's really hard, isn't it? I started thinking I should use hashtags like Kardashians and <laughs> The Bachelorette oh, to no. try to get people's attention. <laughs> Um, because I don't know, I don't know how to get out of that, that bubble. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a really tricky one. That's something I'm experiencing, even with in-situ science, you know, it, it is totally publicly available, but I know that most people that listen to this are fellow scientists mm -hmm. that enjoy hearing you know, candid behind the scenes sort of stories. I think it'd be great if people that know nothing about science sort of use these sort of things to get insight in. Yeah. So my, but, my big thing with that is, yeah. how do you make people love things, James? You need the arts. <laughs> That's what you need. You need the arts. The arts yeah. is the reason we love stuff. Yeah. And they're even worse off than we are in terms of funding <laughs> and recognition. And my two-year-old could have painted that thing or whatever. Silly things that people tend to say about various artistic pursuits and mm. I, I but I really think that that's the key like imagine if there was a imagine if there was a a top 
10 or even a Triple J's Hottest 100 kind of, um, you know, song about alpine invertebrates and why we should care about whether they can pollinate the endangered snowpatch plants or yeah. imagine that imagine that that well, would reach a lot of people i mean it? jurassic park is the classic example uh-huh. where you know i've spoken to a couple of paleontologists now on the podcast and just asked them directly did this play a role in you picking this as a yeah. career and a couple of them just came out and said yep totally you know, it was it was land before time. It was toys and mm-hmm. you know the shops that just started this fascination with dinosaurs, and now they go on to studying the Earth's history and applying that to environmental management and understanding evolutionary biology and things. And and doing things, doing good things. Like it's not the flea circus, right? <laughs> it's real. <laughs> Do, um, do we need more more bugs lifes? And well, this more, is it, right? This is so. I'll give you a little scoop. Oh, so I've got a plan for a paper. Yeah, um, I'm sure that everybody's going to be totally copying. Yeah, and then jump onto this yeah. one. <laughs> no, the thing is that everyone already loves invertebrates. I really think they just don't know what they are. Actually, they yeah. haven't. They don't realize that, like Mr. Doobie. From Romper Room, <laughs> everybody's favorite oh, yeah. 1980s invertebrate, yeah. is an invertebrate with, that does these wonderful ecosystem services and like blah, 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 and does all the great things that invertebrates do. And yeah, uh, and, um, yeah and so I, I want to write a little like reminder piece about, hey, everyone, I know you like the look of pandas, but mm. don't forget how much as a child you idolized this thing. And now as an adult, you get to understand why it was in that kind of iconic position. Mm. Um, yeah, so I've started compiling examples all through. I mean, it's particularly, I guess, TV and movie media that we, that we consume these mm. things. But yeah, I'm trying to get a list of all this stuff together. I'm just going to have an Australian perspective probably. But, mm. but even Earthworm Jim. Do you remember Earthworm Jim, the computer game? Do I remember the early Earthworm 90s Jim? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how many people have been successful using an earthworm? I mean, especially the computer game. <laughs> so uh, Mr. Doobie uh, is obviously an important aspect of your upbringing, I'm, I'm guessing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes, I was on Romper Room. <laughs> That's why I have such great media skills. Yeah. So Romper Room, for people that yeah. might not be familiar with it, I have any vague memories of it, really. Would it be classified as a reality show nowadays? <laughs> Probably not. It's like a kid's game show? No, not really. It's just like a variety show? A kid's variety show? Kids played show? games and Played stuff. games. We talked them out, like... Who gave us what special present? Yeah, there was um, a guy in a bee suit. Yeah, we learned a lesson. My lesson of the day when I was on it was to drink milk. Who <laughs> <laughs> said drink milk, which is a comp- which you it, do a lot. It, it, I do, but it's a, it's a um, <laughs> from a bee. It's a confusing message. <laughs> um, but I guess Mister Doobie could tell we're mammals. Yeah, so. He was just using some cross-species references. Yeah, and he was, you know, really in the uh, the agricultural industry. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you know, totally. Just, yeah. The dairy farm's just down the road from his, <laughs> from his canola crops or whatever he's growing. And what did you have to do on Rumper Room? Uh, we read the hippopotamus on the roof eating cake. Yes. <laughs> and Rosemary Stanton was on. Oh. She's telling us all about the importance of drinking milk for calcium and eating cheese. <laughs> and I, oh, oh yeah. 
I messed up. Uh oh. I- <laughs> she said, "What do cows make?" And I said, "Grass." <laughs> <laughs> I got it around the wrong way. <laughs> Yeah, I was so close. Um, well, it's that classic, you know, what are you putting a toaster gag? Yeah, well, yeah, it was a trick question. <laughs> what do cows make milk out of, I think is what she was asking. <laughs> Good. I didn't have that in my notes, so I'm glad Rumper <laughs> came up. Yeah. But so we were talking about looking after invertebrates in your home. Mm-hmm. Things like that that mm-hmm. means being okay with the odd cockroach, being okay with the odd ant trail yeah. in the kitchen, that sort of stuff. Or doing crazy experiments to figure out what they'll avoid. Mm. And um, turned out in our household, cinnamon is the oh. is a little if you trickle it just near the entrance to their the way the place they get into the house that they don't tend to use oh. that hole anymore. There you go. So, Scoop. Yeah, well, my uh, my partner figured that out. And he's a bioinformatician. <laughs> Goodness. <laughs> if a bioinformatician can figure that out. A bioinformatician did a little ecological behavioral experiment just off the cuff. I was it's so publishable? impressed with him. Goodness. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> All right, so we need more art about invertebrates. I reckon. Have you got a, a project in mind? <laughs> I'm, 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 You'll leave it to the artist? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it wouldn't be a good move. But yeah, like particularly, you know, I think we need grown-up art. Like Bugs Life and stuff is like, yeah, kids, kids get this message all the time. But yeah, adults don't. I don't think, yeah. or whatever we are. And, and kids are already okay with bugs. Mm-hmm. They stick their hands in dirt mm-hmm. and they yeah. poke ants, and they're fascinated by this sort of stuff. They love it. And then it all all of a sudden hits a critical edge where uh, you. I almost feel like. You, you play the role you think you're supposed to, and if society says mm. bugs should creep you out and spiders should be gross, then oh, that's no. what you do. Yeah, it would be great to understand the sociological patterns with that stuff. Mm. I don't know what they are, but I guess well, I guess everybody here at this conference hasn't grown out of that, probably. Yeah. So there's some proportion that make it through. Why do we make it through and others don't? I don't know. I think we're contrarian. Mm, maybe, think. yeah, yeah. that probably make a lot of sense. <laughs> <laughs> and they, well, you know, it's, it's, it's a behavioral shortcut, I feel like. If you don't have a relationship with uh, spiders, mm-hmm. if somebody brings up spiders in conversation, you don't have anything to add to that conversation other than this preconceived notion that oh. they're creepy and crawly and dangerous mm-hmm. and so that's what you go for right just to kind of say what you think people want to hear kind of deal yeah it's the equivalent mm-hmm. of you know uh, how, how's the weather sort yeah. of talk Ooh, spiders. yeah it's a bit mm-hmm. hot out isn't it that sort of yeah level of engagement yeah i mean i guess before i got into science when i was you know rescuing bugs off a netball court mm. I was I was getting you know very gently and and friendly teased about that. <laughs> oh yeah, there she goes rescuing the bugs again. Oh, oh, oh what a crazy person, you know. And it was always really meant in the absolute, you know, very affectionate and all that sort of stuff. But still, yeah, it's definitely like you're different. <laughs> you're other. Well, and is that because <laughs> lots of scientists tend to be contrarian 
by nature almost. You know, we we mm. we ask questions. It's what we do. Yeah. And so, if we're given an assumption yeah. such as bugs are bad, mm-hmm. so we automatically go, "Well, are they?" Make this noise a lot like. The polite way of saying you're completely wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, maybe. Well, we're definitely taught. You know, the worst thing is an unchallenged assumption, aren't we? So yeah, yeah. It it could be, could be all part of that that way of thinking about the world, questioning. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So speaking of questions. We want to talk about the sort of science you do, mm-hmm. and the, the, well, this is your second time on the Institute Science podcast. I know. First time was a practice run. It was great, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> not, not much has changed on the podcast since then. Still, still the same, you know, vibe, same format. Opening music's changed. I've noticed. Yeah, it's, I, I much prefer the new music. Yeah, I think they were both good for different reasons. <laughs> Um, we didn't at all talk about the research you're currently doing yeah. on the last podcast. We just talked about previous stuff. We did. We talked about uh, color-changing grasshoppers. And now you're working on, well, I guess they're color-changing katydids that change colors in different ways. What, a, what an amazing leap yes. I've made. <laughs> <laughs> so these are uh, alpine katydids. They are. What are they for people that have never seen them? Yeah, God, can we describe really them? Luckily, we have M&Ms in front of us. Yes. Peanut M&Ms. Okay. So everybody pause the podcast, go to the shops, come back, get your packet of peanut M&Ms. Okay. And then start again. Yeah. Okay, go. Okay. And we're back. So we're back. <laughs> so you've, if you look into your M&Ms, you've got lots of colors. Yeah. And you've got brown ones, yeah, red ones, and blue ones among them. Yeah. The mountain katydid at rest is akin to your brown M M&M. and M. <laughs> and that's a quote. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and when it uh, is disturbed by yes. something that it perceives as being threatening, mm-hmm. it will raise its tegmina. Which is just a special wings. word for its hardened wings. Yeah. yeah. And it will reveal on the top surface of its abdomen some red and blue stripes, red, blue and black stripes, actually. Um, and along with that, um, it'll start to exude a, a little uh, clear liquid okay. on, that, on that surface. Yeah. And in, in really extreme situations, it will tilt its head forward and reveal an orange band behind its head, which is also... the orange of the M&M's and, and it'll start vibrating its antennae which makes it look a bit like a wasp oh mm-hmm. so going around its day to day life it's a little brown blob looking thing yes but the second it feels threatened it flashes very very bright colours like that M&M I just think. like very much like the colours of the not brown M&M's yeah yeah why does it do that mm-hmm <laughs> so, um, well, wouldn't you have thought it was a warning signal? Mm-hmm. So, um, I think it's a warning signal. And I remember when I saw it, I was trying to, you were there. We were on my first ever field trip, <laughs> my PhD. I was looking for species to work on. 
and um, true Herbstein Lab style, go to an ecosystem, see what's there. Mm-hmm. That's what you should do your PhD on. <laughs> um, and or so do it. the t- total opposite. Or do the total opposite. Go true. somewhere, work on something you can't find. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As I do. <laughs> Choose your species remotely and never find it again. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I remember thinking like, oh, that's obviously a warning signal. That's a bit too easy. Yeah. I'll work on something else for my PhD, which is a huge mistake in a lot of ways. Um, it was much harder. I decided to come back and work on it after a while because it was actually, once I guess I'd had more experience in understanding how color signals work and what the mm. literature is like, I realized that actually this thing is quite cool and different. Yeah, and so... Um, what's so, the- so warning signals... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What are they? <laughs> they are sensory experiences, so oh. patterns or sounds or anything you can perceive, a predator could perceive, mm-hmm. that it associates with a bad experience. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if a lady, if a ladybird bug was eaten, a ladybird beetle was eaten by a predator, and that predator felt sick afterwards. Mm-hmm or during, or it tasted bad while it had it in its mouth and spat it out, it would, in theory, learn to associate the red and um, black spots Mm -hmm. with that bad experience and avoid that prey item in the future. And it's kind of like when you eat a bad prawn. Mm -hmm. You don't go back near prawns. You you see those little orange and white stripes and they kind of become a warning signal depending on how sick you got. Most people will avoid that food item for a very long time. Yep. So that's a warning signal. And what's weird about mountain katydids is that they don't reveal their warning signal all the time. It's hidden. Okay. And that seems like a weird strategy. Most things that we think of that have warning colors like poison dart frogs you find in Central America or ladybirds or brightly colored snakes or anything like that. There's some, some of those amazing looking spiky caterpillars. Mm. Yeah, they all, they all show off that they're defended or that they're not worth attacking right mm-hmm. but the mountain katydids hide their their signal what are they doing why are they hiding it was one of the questions so the signal that is flashed though mm-hmm. could be a bluff indeed well a signal that's static can be a bluff too right yeah um doesn't have to be flashed to be a bluff but the good thing about hiding it if it's a bluff is that no one, it's harder for, for predators to learn that it's a bluff because mm. it's not revealed very often. It's not kind of available in the, the wild yeah. very often for predators to encounter and learn about it and yeah. test it and then find out that it's actually totally fine. Yeah. <laughs> so in, 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 you're interested in why, why bother hiding it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so one idea is that it's a best of both worlds. So when you're a conspicuous Ladybird bug. Ladybird beetle. Keep saying that. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, Coleopterans. Um, you're easy to find. And if there's naive predators around that don't know that they shouldn't eat you, then you might get killed because you're very easy to detect. Mm-hmm. So if you hide your warning signal, maybe you can have sort of a best of both worlds whereby you um, are easy, uh, difficult to find. Mm-hmm. And then when you are found, then you can say, actually, you shouldn't eat me. Okay, yeah. so they wait until something like a bird's just about to eat them and then flash these colors. Well, yeah, what, one of the experiments we did showed that the, they actually have to be physically attacked before they'll reveal their colors. 
So that seems silly. Yeah, <laughs> that's not what mo- that's not what people expected in this field. People expected that um, that prey that do these kinds of this kind of uh, defense would somehow be able to, t- to detect that their predator was close by mm-hmm. and reveal their warning signal um, before they were attacked to yeah. tell the predator to go away. Not these guys, though. <laughs> and so that could be because um, there could be lots of things in the environment that are unreliable cues. Mm-hmm. So there could be moving branches or there could be lots of wind or whatever um, that moves those branches. Yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> or other stuff um, falling, and butterflies, or yeah, butterflies, uh, aliens. Yeah, can't rule it out. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, and so maybe it's better to wait until you're really, really sure you've been attacked. Yeah, to make yourself very obvious. <clears throat> but then that, of course, implies that you must be able to survive the initial attack. Yeah, or at least one of your ancestors must have. So. Yeah, um, the way we think they're getting around that is that they're only attacked by very intelligent birds. (laughs) (laughs) How do you know that? (laughs) We don't, we don't. Okay. It's just a hypothesis as to how something like this might evolve. So like if you're in in a world of chickens. Yeah. um, Do you remember that that, um, (laughs) that really terrible, I think it's fair to say terrible, um, version... Of Jurassic Park. Chicken Park. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Anyway, say you lived in Chicken Park. Yes. Um, chickens just murder everything that they see, right? Especially yeah. if a human throws it to them. Yeah. They just expect that it's food. Um, I don't know about Gallus Gallus in the deep jungles of wherever they're from in um, Southeast Asia. Is that where the chicken is originally from? Yeah, let's go with that. Like that. Anyways, I don't know about them, but I know that the backyard chickens around Canberra, for example, are uh, fairly partial to attacking and killing anything that you mm-hmm. put into it, their enclosures. So if you live in that world, then you can't really have a signal that you reveal after you've been attacked because yeah. you're already dead. But if you live in a world where you have very anxious predators like ravens mm-hmm. um, and to a lesser extent, uh, magpies that are sort of poke, test, think, you know, have a little taste, maybe mm-hmm. tap, walk away, check if something's, you know, then you're more likely to, I think, evolve something like this. But this is complete conjecture at this point. So we're assuming that they're smart and being cautious because these things are pretty toxic? I guess so, yeah. That would be the assumption that um, by being um, by being cautious, they're sort of showing that they can you know, uh, I don't predict is the wrong word, but they can kind of conceive of the fact that mm. not everything in their entire universe is something they should shove in their mouth. <laughs> <laughs> but are these cariotids toxic? Do we know that? And we don't know. <laughs> so what we do know is that they eat these things called senecios, these plants called senecios, and they are known to be a fairly nasty toxin that builds up in the livers of various vertebrate species. Mm-hmm. And we know that the... Katydids prefer to eat senecios over other plants in, um, in preference tests. And we find them on them all the time. They like the flowers and they like the leaves. They like the stems. Um, and so, and there was some work in 1975 published that shows that an alkaloid that the katydids have um, is analogous to something from the senecio. So, um, 
we think that they probably are to some degree, but mm. but the toxicity of of a prey item is all relative. Yeah, it depends on how hungry the predator is. It depends on you know the health of the predator, whether it's you know loaded up on toxin already or whether it's just been to its local clay lick and it's all ready to go. Mm. And <laughs> um, it depends on a range of different things, um, the physiological susceptibility of the species and and so on. So. Um, there's so many variables in that um, in that equation that it's tricky to mm. just say for sure. Yes, this thing is toxic, or no, this thing is not toxic. Mm-hmm. It gets complex pretty fast. So this is a project we've been working on for a little while. Yeah, but it's years? about to get a big kick up the butt. <laughs> oh, I'm gonna. Or it's gonna kick into the next gear, whatever mm. euphemism you want to use. It's gonna kick the next gear in the butt because. How many days ago did you just get a DECRA? Yeah. Um, <laughs> how many days ago was that? I think it was the 10th of November. All right. What's the date today? <laughs> was that like two weeks ago? Something like Maybe. that. Yeah. So you got a DECRA. Yeah. A just... Discovery Early Career Research. What does it stand for? Yeah. Award? Discovery Early Career Researcher Award. Okay. Yeah. Which is... Um... What is a DECRA for people that yeah. don't know? So, I mean, literally and emotionally, what so, is a decor? <laughs> yeah, it's like a, it's like a, it, it has a, it's a thing, isn't it? Like it has, like when people say that acronym, it, like it's like, um, it's a lot implied. So it's a, that. yeah, so it's an Australian Research Council Fellowship. Yeah. Um, so big government funding Yeah, body. so the peak Australian research funding for non-medical research. Yeah. Um, that body gives out 200 of these to any non-medical research across Australia mm-hmm. um, every year. And Which sounds like a lot, but they're stupidly yeah, competitive. Yeah, so uh, between two and 3,000 people usually apply, mm-hmm. I think. Um, and... It's it's tricky because it's everything. So it's all sociology, philosophy, maths, physics, chemistry. Everything. Everything. Yeah. Uh, except for medical. So it's really a lot of people, I guess, mm-hmm. applying. And you can only apply for it um, within five years of finishing your PhD. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to write a big giant proposal that takes several months to put together and you have to have very detailed project outlines and big giant quite awful to write sections on your impact on the field mm. that you've worked in over your short career and things like that and um, if you get one it means you're you're the cream of the crop <laughs> it means you're you're the, lucky <laughs> the coconut on the lemington the the you know <laughs> <laughs> I know a lot of people that don't like the coconut on the <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's why you're the coconut on the um, No, I don't think you... I certainly don't think it means you're the cream of the crop. It means that the projects that you put forward and what you had on your CV at that time um, was a, appealed to a certain set of panel members mm-hmm. and the ARC and that the reviewers that they sent your project proposal to didn't hate it so much that they convinced the person that it was, shouldn't be funded. That's, I think that's basically such a what cop out answer. <laughs> it's, it's the truth. Right? <laughs> it is in practice exactly what it means. Yeah. Um, and that's why not getting one doesn't mean you're not an absolutely, totally, an awesome, wonderful scientist that should be respected and loved and 
<laughs> revered or whatever. Well, that's most people don't. Exactly. That's the thing. And mm. yeah, they still go on to be amazing world-changing scientists. Of course. Yeah. So you put in a project proposing that for the next three years you're going to study in greater detail mm-hmm. this phenomenon of warning displays. Yeah, I want to understand how it evolves. Mm-hmm. So we have this idea. So this, this warning coloration thing is tricky, right? Mm-hmm. So it's all well and good that you can understand how once it's evolved that predators will learn to avoid these things and, and that all makes sense that it gets reinforced once it exists. But how does it exist in the first place? Mm-hmm. You know, how do you have a population chicken world or chicken park with all brown bugs and then one day a red and blue bug like you know pops out of its egg right it's Mm -hmm. been a mutation that pops out that red and blue bug is going to be seen immediately by all the predators and eaten surely Mm -hmm. so the question is how do these mutants survive to reproduce um how do they survive those initial attacks and not be immediately taken out of the population Mm -hmm. um and so there's been a couple of classic hypotheses um, put forward to su- suggest how that works. So one is that when um, uh, when a mutation happens, maybe m- there's multiple mutations and um, all of those individuals hang out together and then not all of them are killed. And so this is this aggregation idea. Mm-hmm. Um, I probably didn't explain that very well, but I don't really understand it. Safety in numbers, maybe. that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, but you still have to explain the you know how the mutation arises all... Anyways, whatever. Uh, <laughs> something about that. Um, Alto and Altoyo and Mappus, I think, nineteen ninety five. All right, that's the reference. Look it up. Good. <laughs> and then the other idea is that um, the predators are just afraid of new things, and mm-hmm. so they avoid weird looking stuff. Yeah. Kind of innately. Um, so neophobia hypothesis. And so this might be another way that we can get to to warning coloration. This this hidden and then suddenly revealed one. Mm-hmm. So the way I pitched it is that um, the startle displays may be a new route to solving the apisemitism paradox. Okay. <laughs> apisemitism just being warning coloration. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so so it might be that when animals, um, when little prey animals are fleeing away from predators, they maybe open their wings really fast yeah. to try to fly away. And the, that opening of their wings was um, actually in and of itself a little bit scary for the predator. They... It was a sudden movement, mm-hmm. and that, you know, um, kind of drew the predator back a little bit. And then those animals that were able to use that advantage to, to, um, to survive uh, may be more likely to, to be sort of have the evolutionary space to be colorful underneath mm-hmm. their wings. And so, therefore, um, therefore you get these, these hidden colorful displays that then may, over evolutionary time, um, be kind of constantly revealed. Yeah. So maybe. So that's the sort of grand hypothesis that we want yeah. to test and we need to show lots of animations and things to birds and do lots of highly controlled predator psychology experiments to try mm-hmm. to understand what predation psychology is driving that whole yeah. idea. So you might not want to answer this, mm-hmm. but to get, a, to get a bit nerdy mm-hmm. and notice you're avoiding the term dimatic displays. Oh, uh-huh, yeah, I am. <laughs> Not on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say it yet. So that's always what I think of when I think of something that flashes bright colors to predators that's a classic dimatic display. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Or is it? Mm-hmm. You know, is it? <laughs> what is a dimatic display? So, yeah, so dimatism 
um, is this idea that animals suddenly reveal, they do a, a behavior, mm -hmm. they suddenly reveal a bright color. Um, it's been called a million different things over its life, yeah. uh, over the lives of many scientists that have looked at it. Um, yeah, and so startle displays is the common, commonly used phrase. Um, yeah, and I guess the biggest question in, in, in there is um, whether, the, whether the animals have to actually be truly um, not worthy of attack. Mm -hmm. or whether they can just pretend, whether just by doing these, these behaviors and revealing these bizarre colors and things, whether they can, that's enough to deter the predator. So people arguing about whether um, dramatic displays have to be undefended um, mm -hmm. animals. So they, they have their bright colors, but they don't have any toxin or any bad taste, yeah. and so they should actually be eaten so by, nef by definition, it should be a, a bluff display. Yeah, so that's one, one argument in yeah. the field, yeah. And so a classic example would be a mantis, mm. like a dead leaf mantis that suddenly reveals bright colors. But as far as we know, as far as I know, there's no mantises that are, are toxic mm -hmm. to, to birds. And so the birds should eat them, and they don't, if, presumably because of this display. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we're arguing that... Um, that the dematic part of a defensive signal is not the whole revealing of the colors, mm -hmm. that it's actually the transition between being camouflaged and then being suddenly warning colored. Mm -hmm. And that, that transition, that experience for the predator of actually um, watching that transition or hearing that transition um, is startling in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And then the next component, the third component, um, may or may not be honest. The warning colors mm -hmm. may be honest or dishonest for one of better phrases. Yeah. Yeah, so there's a lot to test in all of that because, um, you know, you can kind of arm wave about it all day long if you want, mm -hmm. um, but you need the data to actually just figure out what's going on, whether which one it is or what's, what else it is. Something well, else. this arm waving happens a lot <sighs> in, in our field. There's lots of papers on... It's your favorite thing, isn't it? The James? semantics of terms. Yeah. Do we... Another one coming out. <laughs> oh, thanks, Kate. <laughs> The next question is, do we need more of these papers? <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, I think ultimately what we need is the data. Yeah. Um, there is an argument for having fields having working hypotheses, like, and like, like one working hypothesis, mm -hmm. which I don't know even is, ne is necessary. But that is one argument. People say, oh, field is kind of fractured and, and, and messed up if we don't have, like, if we don't sort of have consensus on what we think is going on at the moment mm. with the current data that we have and then, and have some kind of working hypothesis or working definition, mm. I guess, and then going forward from there. Um, so that's sort of one point of view. Um, I, don't, I don't know if you're sort of putting the cart before the horse if you try to have the definition. Mm. Before you've got the data. Um, well, so. I mean, science is supposed to work by you have your data first and you make conclusions from that. Right. But then there's a flip side of it where you need to come up with a hypothesis, an idea of what is maybe going on mm -hmm. so that you can go out and try and prove it wrong. Yeah. 
I just I get frustrated because the, there's a lot of refining hypotheses and not a whole lot of going and figuring out what's going on. Yeah, and it seems a bit like um, like a publication grab to just keep refining hypotheses mm. rather than actually going out and doing the hard yards of spending the long hours in the field doing the, the extremely long mm. experimental stuff. Could be a symptom of pressure to publish these days. Could just be a different style. Mm. Could be people liking to discuss things, you know, in public Well, we're fora. also a pedantic type of people. Yeah. So. <laughs> Could be so pedanticism. We like detail. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I guess there is sort of, there is a, um, in myself as well, and some science personalities are sort of a, feeling of wanting to have things all settled before you're like getting everything organized like mm. making sure everything's sort of set up and ready to go or something and not having too many too many balls in the air or something i don't know but mm. we have to embrace embrace diversity and uncertainty i think <laughs> it's the only way forward and so for the next three years now you're going to be full-time research yeah which means you can step away Almost. from teaching and other things like that because you have this DECRA fellowship yeah so that's the kind of the reason I guess that you go for these things is because you um, gives you opportunity to focus your time on so if you if you don't already have um, a position at a university then you it gives you a job mm-hmm. and if you do already have a position at a university then it, it take, gets you out of your administrative uh, most of your administrative and teaching duties and allows you to focus um, almost full time on teaching and research mm-hmm. um and so that's an absolute, you know, privilege and um, delight. <laughs> um, oh, I will still keep into teaching a little bit because I really love it and because, um, you know, it's important to, to be talking with students. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll still do some administrative stuff. I have 10% teaching, 10% research, I think, more or less. All right. Mm. Well, maybe we'll have to come and... Did I say research? I mean admin. <laughs> You know, paperwork, that sort of stuff. Yeah, and committees and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, which is also really rewarding. Well, maybe we'll have to have a regular check-ins and see how this research is developing. Eesh. I'm sure it's going to go really smoothly and it's really going to be really easy. Yeah, it always does, <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> well, if people want to you know, keep tabs on this research project, you have a brand new Twitter handle. I changed it to a sensible one. Yeah. <laughs> so I feel yes. like I'm selling out a bit. Actually. It was at quasi coherent. Yeah, it was a really clever um, <laughs> play, on, play on words where it's like it's not a very coherent like tweeter, but also it's a kind of reflectance of like, <laughs> particular kind of biological coloration. Well, it's a physics thing, but <laughs> find it in, in lots of biological systems. Yes. Now it's just at Kate Umbers. At Kate Numbers, K A T E U M B E R S, and you have a lab. You're you're running the Invertebrate Conservation Lab. Yeah, that's the name at the moment. Okay, is it still just under Umbers Lab? No, it's com, uh, just KateUmbers.com. All right. Yeah, you can find me there and come and check out everything we're doing. It's all really amazing. It's great. Yeah, <laughs> love your work, Kate. <laughs> Thanks, James. We have to eat all of these M&Ms now. All right. (laughs) We don't have a bad experience. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, guys, for listening to the podcast. We're on Twitter, at InSituScience. We're at InSituScience on everything, though, so check us out there. 
And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs>